The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers. Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to Behind the Warrior podcast. Today, we will start a two-part podcast with Dr. Chris Free, author of Operator Syndrome. Operator Syndrome is a unique constellation of medical and behavioral healthcare needs of military special operations forces and was recently published in the International Journal of Psychiatry and Medicine. Chris has 30 years of professional experience working with military veterans and active duty personnel and has conducted clinical trials, epidemiology, historical epidemiology, and neuroscience research. He has co-authored over 300 scientific publications, including a graduate textbook on adult psychopathology. His work on operator syndrome is changing the way we understand and treat the complex set of interrelated health, psychological, and interpersonal difficulties that are common downstream outcomes of a career in military special operations. He devotes efforts to the SEAL Future Foundation, Chair, Medical Advisory Board, Boulder Crest Foundation, Scientific Advisory Panel, Military Special Operations Family Collaborative, Special Operations Association of America, The Mission Within, Vets, Inc., and to the military special operations community in general. He has testified before U.S. Congress and served as a paid contractor for Department of Defense, Veteran Affairs, U.S. State Department, and the National Board of Medical Examiners. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. All right, Maria. Thank you for having me. We're so glad that you're here. here. (laughs) It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. So, Chris, we're here to talk, you're here to talk with us today about a very interesting article you just published on operator syndrome. But before we get started, can you tell us a little about yourself? Where were you born and what was your childhood like? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, I, was born in, I was born in New York City. Um, my father was in medical school at Columbia University, and we moved away about six months after I was born because he finished medical school and went went into the Air Force. So my father was a physician in the Air Force for a number of years in my very early childhood. He was a Vietnam veteran, um, obviously not a combatant. Uh, He was there as as a flight surgeon for the Air Force. And so we moved around a lot in my childhood and actually kind of moved around a lot throughout my entire life partly due to his medical training, my dad's medical training, and partly due to his Air Force service. Um, and then after my parents got divorced, there were a few other moves in there. So I never thought of myself this way, but in some ways, yeah, I, I, I grew up with a, you know, a military um, aspect to my, uh, to my childhood. Yeah, you were an Air Force brat. <laughs> That's sort of, great. Sort of, sort of, I guess. Where, where all did uh, you cer- travel? I was certainly a brat. I was certainly a brat. <laughs> uh, where, where did we? Where did I live in my youth? Let's see. Well, San Antonio. Um, and I'm not going to distinguish um, my dad's training from um, military because 
uh, rotations because I don't really, I didn't really know, but I know we lived in New York, North Carolina, Nebraska, uh, San Antonio, Alabama, uh, a year in Taiwan when I was about six. Oh, wow. Um, where else? Let's see. Moving a few places out. We eventually settled in Columbia, Missouri in 1972. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the end of my father's, uh, uh, constant wanderings. Um, he did eventually after, after six or seven years in, in Missouri, he moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan and was faculty at the University of Michigan then for the next 30 some years until he passed, passed away. <clears throat> Wow, so you were definitely influenced by the military at a young age. And I, and I think you had mentioned before that your grandfather also served in the Spanish-American great War. Grand, oh, my, your great-grandfather. Great grand, mm-hmm. Yeah, my great-grandfather served in the Spanish-American War that, that was 1898. And, mm-hmm. and he lived to be 100, so I knew him. Wow. So I got a firsthand, firsthand accounts of the Battle of San Juan Hill from my great-grandfather when I was a, a child. Wow. Um, can you tell us how their service affected your family and maybe your early aspirations? Well, I, I grew up in the shadow of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So I was I was born in 1963. So in the mid-70s, as a, as, a, as a young adolescent, I had very much a profound awareness of, of the war. Um, living in Columbia, Missouri, we, we'd had a... I had a babysitter. My father got plugged into the Vietnamese community mm-hmm. there. And we, my favorite babysitter was a man named Mr. Long. Mm-hmm. And, and my father had been helping. He was a Vietnamese man uh, who was in the U.S. working on a Ph.D. in something. I don't, I don't know what. My father was just voluntarily helping him with his dissertation. And we became in exchange for babysitting services. Um, and in 19, probably would have been 1975, Mr. Long went back to... Uh, Vietnam to, to to collect his wife and, and, and child and bring them to to America. Except that he was picked up by by the North uh, Vietnamese and executed. Oh my goodness! Um, which was uh, you know that was a pr- pretty profound moment for me as a child. You know, as a child, was to learn that this man I'd liked and respected it had had literally been executed, murdered by by a government. I can't imagine. And. You know, so I think had that awareness. Um, we in the seventies, my parents, we, we we went to Quaker meetings. So I was being from that point forward. I was being raised um, with the the perspective of of, of being a conscientious objector um, uh, to war. And I don't know how much you know about the Quaker. Nothing. Uh, I, I do not know anything about the Quakers. Um, so please, it's a very, it's a very humble, very, um, very simple uh, approach to to religion. Um, they're called friends meetings mm-hmm. because that's kind of what they are. It's a group of friends that get together. There's there's not a lot of formality. There's there's not a formal leader or pastor or minister. Um, it's kind of a, a collection of people that kind of run it themselves as they go. Um, and I do remember when I was approaching age 18, when I was, was being faced with the decision to, uh, do I register for the draft essentially? And I was 
my parents weren't telling me what to do, but they did ask me to talk to one of the sort of the elders in the, in the, in the Quaker community, um, which I did. I had a long conversation with this gentleman at his home. And um, at the end of the day, I, I decided that I would. I did, re- I did register for the draft. I did not declare conscientious objector status at that point in time. And, and part of my reasoning was, was, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't sign up, that meant somebody else was, was, was registering in my place. I just didn't want to do that at that time. Um, so I feel like I'm rambling. No, here. no, Maybe you're I've not lost, at all. So, lost the thread. so you so registered I grad, for the draft. I did. Mm-hmm. I did at age, at age 18. And then uh-huh. I went to college and did, you know, all the, all the usual stuff that, that college kids do. I majored in psychology, never intended to continue in psychology, um, but, uh, but then a couple years after college graduation, I, I did go and to, uh, to school to get a PhD in clinical psychology. And one of the things that I wanted to do when I, when I, you know, embarked on graduate school was I wanted to work with veterans. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a part of the solution, part of the mental health solution for veterans. Wow. And, and my dissertation, I did collect data with, with veterans at, at a VA I did my final year of training at the VA Medical Center in um, Charleston, South Carolina. That was my pre-doctoral internship year, and, and that was a consortium there, the VA and the Medical University of South Carolina. And I just segued into my career then. My first job was, was right there at, at the VA. I was a trainee one day, and I was an employee the next. Um, wow. So you clearly have a soft spot for veterans and spent 15 years working with the VA. Um, can you tell us about your role and your experiences there? And then what made you decide to leave and focus on special operations? Sure. Um, so my first seven years of my career, I was a full-time, you know, 40-hour-a-week clinician at the VA in a PTSD clinic. And... Um, Along the way, I was doing a little bit of research. We had all this data there in the clinic. We had um, cabinets full of patient files that nobody had ever um, done anything, you know, research-wise with. So uh, for those seven years, I was kind of just plugging along, occasionally publishing a little bit of research here and there. Mm-hmm. It, I had no, I had no career ambitions to be a full-time. Um, Scientist. That was never part of my plan. That was never in my ambitions. But it kind of happened at some point along the way. I got a, a very large um, NIH grant that essentially paid me, paid uh, 75% of my salary to, to be, to do research. And so I went from being 100% clinical at the VA to being only 25% clinical at the VA. So the next eight years of my career was at the VA was, um, that mixture of, of research and, and clinical work, as well as some teaching and, and some administration, administrative work. Um, I was the director of the PTSD clinic at some point, did that for several years up until the time I left the VA. Why did I leave the VA? Good you question. Ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, my short answer is if you read a book called Wounding Warriors, how how policy make, is making veterans sicker and poorer, I think is the subtitle. Is it called Wounding war- Warriors? 
Wounding words. Okay. Yes, wounding okay. is an active tense. Okay. And written by written by a West Pointer um, named Dan Gate, who is current, who just got appointed as the Veterans Commissioner for the state of Virginia, and his co-author on the book was a was a former Wall Street Journal reporter named Daniel Huang. Um, it's a terrific book, and, and the book's not about me, by the way. <laughs> I, I, um, but if you read the book, I, I, part of my story is told in the book, and really? you know, the and the and the case, the 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 case for why and how the VA is is doing harm to veterans is is very strongly made. Wow. Um, and so, so to your question of of why I left, I left the VA as much as I liked working with veterans. I didn't like working within the system. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I don't respect the system for a variety of reasons, but one is, is the fraud and abuse and the, the, the corruption that I perceived, uh, all around me was just incredible. Um, I do believe that the, the VA's disability policies of encouraging veterans to see themselves as, as, as being sick and disabled, uh, is part of the problem. It's a very large part of the problem. Um, I was publishing some research uh, in the between 2000 and 2005. I had a number of studies coming out published that showed in a variety of different ways, from different angles, that the fraud and the abuse and the disability um, side of things is rampant. There are many people coming into the VA then, and I believe there still are, based on what I read in the Wounded Warriors book. Who don't have PTSD, who aren't really, don't really have a history of, 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 um, combat and who maybe never even served overseas and yet are drawing 100% disability for, for, for PTSD. Wow. And, and, and there's some good reason to believe that, that many of the people receiving disability from the VA are either lying about their, about their service because the VA doesn't really check or they are, are malingering or exaggerating their psychiatric symptoms. Which then means uh, resources are being hoovered up by by people who who don't need them and haven't earned them, and that creates a problem for all the other veterans who do need them and 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 have earned them. I was not being I was I was essentially being punished for that research. The, the big VA does not want to hear that there's a problem with malingering. They they won't acknowledge it. They won't even study it. They'll say it doesn't exist, but they won't study it. So how do they know it doesn't exist? And um, I just decided it was time to move on. I, w- I was not being supported, and I was being actively um, targeted. Um, like I was investigated for a study I did, for example. Yeah. And there was no reason to investigate me. It was just they wanted... They were, it was a witch hunt. They were just looking for something mm-hmm. to, to punish me for. And when they couldn't, couldn't find anything, they, they had to, they, they, they let it go. When I was being asked to give interviews, when I was being, I, I was getting, at the time, one of my studies was in the news a lot. It was getting a lot of national and international attention because we found, um, we did a Freedom of Information Act request of the St. Louis military personnel records 
repository. So we were getting the DD-214s of people coming coming through the VA reporting to be Vietnam veterans mm-hmm. with PTSD, and we were matching up what they told, what they you know gave as the, their history of their military service versus what was actually documented. And the discrepancies were massive, just absolutely massive. Um, I think I think we kind of came to conclude it was it was well under half were were telling the full story. Oh my goodness! Um, and we had I think we had six or seven people in the study who claimed to have been special operations or special forces, and of course none of them were. That is unbelievable. And you know what? I actually can um can share. That's happened here at the foundation. Um, that you know we've had people. Um, applying for assistance and submitting fraudulent DD-214s, which I was just stunned by. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting that, you know, obviously this isn't a new occurrence then. Somebody did a, a look at the VAs. Yes, it's, it's widespread. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely widespread. There's even a book about it. It's called Stolen Valor, Valor, correct? Is that what Stol- the term is? S- Stolen Valor. Stolen Valor. Um, okay, there you go. Yeah, and and in the and I think you're there's a there's there's um, legislation. There's the Stolen Valor Act, mm-hmm. but um, that whole act was based on a book written by a man named B.G. Burkett. Judd goes by Jug Jug Burkett mm-hmm. wrote a book called Stolen Valor uh, that published in the late nineties. And Jug was a was a Vietnam veteran himself, is a Vietnam veteran, I believe he's still alive. Um, who was appalled mm-hmm. at the at the narrative that Vietnam veterans were were broken and and psychiatrically, you know, destroyed because all the veterans he knew, all the veterans he had served with were you know, seemed to be doing really well. Mm-hmm. So he he started just he wrote a book on his experiences, essentially one after another. People who were in the public eye claiming to be war heroes, he would go and he get their he would he would do his homework and he he'd get their military records. And many of them he found had never served or they'd served, oh, but they goodness. they were or they were, they had served, but they were never actually in Vietnam. That's unbelievable. Um, Including some very some very well known people, including um, Dan Rather is mentioned in the book. What the, the anchor Dan Rather is mentioned in the book. The actor Brian Dennehy is profiled in the book, um, and, along with many 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 other people. Mm-hmm. I mean the typical the typical scenario that Burkett was was getting into was somebody would run for sheriff, you know, in some town, and they'd be running for sheriff and they'd be touting their Vietnam War experience as as part of their you know their their bona fides so he would go and he'd do a little little research and he'd find nope that person never even served um and that was a pattern he kept finding over and over again um we we have a society full of people lying um about about being war heroes that is just really unbelievable um so thank you for sharing that, you know, those experiences that you, you had with the VA. You, yeah. you weren't expecting to get, get <laughs> off on, on, into that rabbit That sounds hole. like a that's whole other podcast. That's, that's a whole other conversation. I had, I had yeah. to stop myself. What, what were we talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, I do, I do want to thank you so much for sharing your experience with the VA because that's, that's incredibly interesting, um, to hear that and actually quite shocking. Um, but so I want to bring us back to our, our conversation today. What was it that made you decide to leave and now focus on the special operations community? 
Well, I wish I could say it was all that premeditated and carefully mapped out and planned, <laughs> but but like most things in my life, there's there's a lot of randomness. Uh-huh. So I, I I left the VA and I left academic medicine essentially to move to the University of Hawaii. I'm at the branch campus on the Big Island, mm-hmm. which is you know is is I mean I'm five hours behind you mm-hmm. Central Time, so. A lot of people don't realize how remote and far away Hawaii is. Um, I'm not sure what really was going on. And my wife and I were kind of having our, our midlife crisis together. So we packed up and we, <laughs> we took pay cut, we took, we took big pay cuts and uh-huh. we moved out to paradise to, to live the dream. Nice. And, and it has, I mean, we are living the dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say otherwise. Um, it, it was not intended to be a research move and certainly was not intended to be to, you know, I kind of thought my days of working with veterans might, might be over. Um, but while I, while I was here, I, I got recruited away to Houston to Baylor college of medicine. And so I actually left the university of Hawaii for about six months, took that job full time, but then came back and kept the Houston work part time. So there was about 12 years first at Baylor College of Medicine and then the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. I think 12 years, pretty much straight through, I commuted monthly. Uh, so three weeks in, at home in Hawaii and then a week in Houston. That's uh, a big work. commute. <laughs> mm-hmm. How many hours yeah. that's in the air? Is it six? Uh, oh, but it, then no. you got to Texas. It's six to California, I think, and then... Yeah, it's about a five and a half hour flight between Hawaii and California and then to Texas. Wow. Um, but by the time you add airports in there, it's usually a, a door to door. It's about an 18 to 20 hour door to door. Wow. Trip each way. In, in, in Texas, I was not initially working with veterans, but I had friend, friends in the veteran community and one of them was a Navy SEAL who had recently left Dev Group. Mm-hmm. After 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 the Bin Laden mission, apparently a number of guys kind of felt like like they done they were done they had mm-hmm. accomplished you know mission accomplished and it was time to move on and and so my friend Garrett um, and I I always have permission to to use his name Garrett was essentially said to me he was his his original complaint was I don't. I don't recognize myself when I look at myself in the mirror. I'm not the guy I used to be, and I don't know why. So I started with the hypothesis: well, it's probably PTSD. I'll help my friend, and and life will get life will get better for him. Except he didn't have PTSD. He'd spent uh, almost 20 years in the Navy. Um, he'd been, you know, a SEAL through most of those years. He, you know, been a Dev Group for. A number of years, been on a lot of very high profile missions and uh, over the years. And he didn't have PTSD. He had other things that I didn't understand. So my early experience with the soft community was one of, of trial and error. And it was just like, I don't understand what's going on. Let's, you know, let's do something we don't do very often. Let's get a sleep study. Oh, that was eye opening. Why did why did this guy have sleep apnea? Because he shouldn't have. Hmm. He's a big he's a big muscular fit guy, young, still in his thirties. Wouldn't wow. have expected sleep apnea. So that that was a surprise. So why did um, he? I have to stop you. Why did he have sleep apnea? 
Well, that's part of the question. That's uh -huh. part of the, the, the $64,000 question. Wow. Why is sleep apnea so prominent? Uh -huh. um, the next, the next question, the next thing we looked at was, well, let's get a testosterone. Let's get some hormones looked at. Uh -huh. And I was surprised, shocked that his testosterone was in the tank. Again, at the time, I had no, didn't recognize, I didn't understand. I don't think anybody really understood. You had then. nothing to compare it um, to. <laughs> I had no nothing exactly, mm -hmm. and I had no no clinical experience with the soft community at the VA because they don't go to the they weren't coming to the VA, and I don't think they use the VA much to this day. Mm -hmm. So, so it was really just a, a trial and error of trying different things, trying different assessments, trying different um, healing strategies and approaches. And as his sleep got better, as his testosterone. Um, came back up into where it needed to be, he started to be very different and, and to feel different and to look different and to behave differently. He was more like his old self. So he sent a friend of his my way and said, hey, you help me. Can you help help, uh, help my buddy? And that was it. That was kind of off to the races. And so just through word of mouth referrals over the last, since, since that point, I've talked to hundreds of guys talked to many spouses um kind of functioning informally as a as sort of as a coach as a as a mentor maybe a little bit as a therapist but not officially and you know it was just pattern recognition mm -hmm. after a while seeing the same kinds of things over and over again it, it came to be like okay this is a thing <laughs> Put air quotes around thing. I didn't know what thing <laughs> like it was, <laughs> but but there's something here that everybody's experiencing the same thing, and nobody knows it because they're not talking to each other. Guys don't guys don't tell each other. Hey man, just just to share, I've got low testosterone. I've heard it's that not, guys don't share things like that. We, I wouldn't we don't know, do that. but <laughs> they're like that. We don't we don't do that, and we don't share much of the other stuff going on either. And of course, this is a, this is a what do we know about about the community? Is if if nothing else, this is a community that has a has a high pain tolerance mm -hmm. and, and a willingness to work and push through pain and discomfort, and and, and often to, to to their detriment. Yes, that is true. Um, at some point along the way, I wrote a, a little document and I called it a sleep manual because, uh, and I just used it as education. I called it a sleep manual because I didn't want to call it a you know, you know, a messed up in the head and body manual. Now, what was it? Um, a what manual? Sleep? Sleep. Sleep. Um, Interesting. And I put the focus on sleep because okay. that's something everybody had. No, there's no stigma. Nobody, nobody pushed back and said, oh, no, I don't have a problem with sleep. Everybody, any, everybody I talked to could own that they don't sleep much. Wow. Oh, that was so genius. That, so then it was about, well, let's figure out, okay, let's, let me, so, so I wrote this thing up to help people just as a, like a, hey, let me give you a little bit of education. Mm -hmm. Here's a one pager. And then the one pager became two and then three and four pages. And it was like, to really maximize your sleep, we have to understand your brain health, your, your hormonal health, your pain, your psychological, your addiction. And that educational handout, um, in its early form, eventually, you know, it was kind of a living document for a number of years, but eventually I, I was showing that to colleagues and we were working on it and we, it became the paper that's now known that, that you referenced at the start of this podcast. Mm -hmm. 
So our operator syndrome paper was originally written for operators, not scientists, not the medical community. Interesting. So that leads us to the big question of the hour, which is what okay. is operator syndrome and how do you treat it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that is that is the $64,000 question. <laughs> well, let's start with this. What's an operator? Mm-hmm. And, and that's a discussion in and of itself. Um, I, I don't have a really tight definition of an operator. Um, I refer to the operator the special operations community pretty broadly. And I include, certainly include um, EOD uh, in, in that community. I include the, like the, some of the SWIC boat operators, uh, the Intel and paramilitary forces. I, I think of like Blackwater contractors. Um, I do some work with that community as well. And they've got the same, they've got operator, many of them have operator syndrome. Um, so let's let's let me just say I define operator a little bit broadly. Yes, maybe not, may, like maybe, not offic- maybe not maybe not purely officially only in those who are technically operators. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it? Um, well, I think it starts with traumatic brain injury, and you have you have several things that are several vectors that that I think we can agree affect the community. Uh, in the course of their service. So one is the high op tempo, chronic, which means chronic stress, chronic sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. shifting sleep cycles, you know, working at night, trying to sleep during the day sometimes, um, massive exposures to blast waves, whether that's pulling a trigger, whether that's, um, you know, launching rockets, whether that's disposing of explosives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's that's a major factor and that's part of what separates special operations from conventional forces the op tempo and the exposure to blast waves massive difference and that's what many people don't understand about the soft community it's truly unique wow. and I, I don't even was i don't even want to say it's special in the in the word in the in the term of we usually think of special it's unique it's very unique yeah. I mean, and I, I understand the definition, but to hear you describe it and explain what they're exposed to so clearly, it's like, wow, you're right. You know, that's a, a huge difference. And I think a decade ago, 10 years ago, we didn't really understand that blast waves themselves mm-hmm. cause a very specific type of brain injury um, that's separate and different from impact force forces on the brain. Mm-hmm. So we think of concussions, we think of, you know, boxers that get hit a lot, football players that get hit a lot. Those impact blows have mat can cause, can accumulate and cause what we now call tr- chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy is a, I don't even quite know how to describe it, it's a condition that that is only diagnosed or recognized in, in somebody through a post-mortem study. Mm-hmm. So there was a pathologist named Bennett Amalu who is now well-known. There was a movie made about him. Movie, the title was Concussion, starring Will Smith playing him. And what he was doing was he was taking brains home and, and, and 
working with them in his kitchen at home. Oh, that is so He's gross. With- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, in the name I of science. I, in the name of science, we, we go to we go to we go to some crazy links sometimes. He was he was making histological slides, staining them and looking at them under a microscope, looking for patterns, which he found. Um, that are, that what, what he found was a buildup of tau proteins. And in the brains he was looking at, these were of people who had had a history of significant concussions, usually more than one, and who had shown a pattern toward the end of their life of impulsivity, mood swings, um, confusion, cognitive deficits, um, odd interpersonal behaviors, and many of them had also died by suicide. Mm. So um, think of some of the football players. I think uh, like Junior Seau a few years ago was a classic example. A Hall of Fame football player, long career, retires, struggles, apparently uh, dies by suicide. And when they looked at his brain, he had this very, very abnormal pattern of how protein buildup. Mm. And that's what's, that's what's now called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And that's actually well known. I mean, this is partly when the NFL started developing what's the, their concussion protocols and understanding that they need to try to do, and you can't completely remove it from the nature of the game, obviously, but you can you can take some steps to mitigate the damage. That's from impact forces. So being punched, falling, some type of blow to the head. Blast waves, now we're switching over to the second type of brain injury. Blast waves, um, they can knock, knock you off your feet and leave you with a concussion. They can certainly do that. But they also have a shearing effect. They go through all the soft tissue, these invisible waves of overpressure. Oh, my gosh. People. So it goes, unless you're behind a ballistic shield, it's, it's going to go through you. It goes through the lungs, through your muscles, through your brain. Um, and that shearing effect causes a different type of damage. So six years ago, in 2016, um, a pathologist named Daniel Pearl and his team uh, at Walter Reed did a, a case series study where they they identified um, about I can't remember the exact number. It was like fifteen or twenty um, soldiers who had a history, a documented history of blast wave exposures and cognitive problems later in life, emotional problems, um, and who had died by, most of them, I believe, had died by suicide. Obviously not shooting themselves in the, in the heads. So one gentleman, and I can, I can, I, I believe I can, uh, I can talk about him. I, I won't name names, but, but one of the gentlemen, one of the individuals who was in the, he was case number one, was, was a former Navy SEAL, DevGrew operator for many years, widely liked, widely respected in the community. Um, I'm good friends with his wife, with his widow now. Mm-hmm. Two years after retiring, uh, he shot himself in the chest. His wife sent, got his brain to the, the brain bank mm-hmm. in, uh, in, at Walter Reed. What they, what they found in their study was a whole different pattern. They didn't find the tau protein buildup that you have with CTE. What they found was a pattern of scarring in the glial cells. Wow. Of the nervous system. 
Glial cells are the support cells for neurons. So every neuron has about 10 glial cells that support it, hold it in place, insulate it, help take out the toxins when it's time to do that. Uh, they play an important support role. Scarring in those glial cells. And he named it. They named it interface astroglial scarring as the name of this condition from blast wave exposures. So now we know that there are a whole lot of people in the soft community who are not diagnosed, not recognized with having TBI because they were never knocked out. Mm -hmm. They were never, they never went into any type of concussion protocol. They didn't raise their hand. I mean, that's, that's what the community doesn't do. They don't raise their hand and say, Hey, I'm hurt, sir. Uh, right. I need some, I need, I need to, I need to, you know, some medical attention and time off. Nobody wants to come out of the action, right? Nobody right. wants to be pulled up, pulled out of a deployment or to miss a deployment. Um, so the, this, this brain injury is accumulating over the course of a career. Um, talked with a guy yesterday who was a mortarman. He said he's probably fired 10,000 mortar rounds over the course of his career. Um, that's a massive amount of exposure to, to explosions. Mm-hmm. Even pulling the trigger on a rifle is a micro explosion. Now, for most of us, I can, I can go out and I can go, you know, hunting or shooting, um, for my, for most of my life. As much as I like it, I'm not going to truly incur any damage. But think about what somebody who's a trigger puller in, in, you know, special forces unit, they're, 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 they're firing tens of thousands of rounds. Um, your average conventional soldier, your average uh, law enforcement officer in America, fire, you know, they get they have firearms training and qualifications, but they're not firing the number of rounds that somebody in, in the special forces is, who's a trigger puller. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an order of magnitudes difference. It's not, oh, one group fires five times more or ten times more. It's literally in the, in the, probably in the thousands times more. Right. A, a, a platoon, um, a platoon of guys training for, for a month might, might, might fire 400,000 rounds in a training evolution. The rest of the base of people, of conventional soldiers, collectively, Thousands of soldiers spread over a year or two might wouldn't fire that many rounds. Yeah, that is incredible. So you're really you're really painting a great picture of the difference between the operators and and you know other active duty career fields. I mean, that is just unbelievable, and I I don't think a lot of people think of it that way. No, almost nobody does, except maybe the operators themselves. Right. Civilians don't understand the difference. Mm -hmm. Certainly, VA clinicians don't understand the clinician the, the difference. Even big army, big navy, big air force, big big marine don't understand. Uh, medicine don't understand the difference. Your average physician in, in the, in the DOD does not really understand the difference unless they've served with or at one of those units. 
Um, so there's a, so we have an ignorance problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, mm-hmm. let's call it that. Yeah. Um, so, so part of the challenge when, when I'm in, and I've experienced this over and over again, when I go out there and I'm talking to people at DOD or at VA or even foundations that I'm, that I've tried to raise money from, I often hit this obstacle where what, what I'm told is, Hey, we can't have special programs for special operations because that's not fair to everybody else. That's not social justice. I've literally been told that's not social justice. Oh my goodness. Social, um, and then my report, my response to that is always, well, wait a minute. We're not talking about treat, treating people special because we like them more. Mm-hmm. We're talking about giving people unique populations, the unique forms of care and attention and treatment that they need because they're unique, because they're different. Mm-hmm. Just, just like we recognize, um, I mean, who goes to, who gets OBGYN treatments and therapies? Women. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There's a, there's a, and there's a biological reason for that. You know, you know, no matter, I don't care what the wokesters want to say about it. Mm -hmm. There's men and there's women for Mm -hmm. the most part. Mm -hmm. And I, I accept there are, there are, there are, maybe there are a small number of people that, that are, you know, somewhere on a continuum. But for the most part, biology dictates women need OBGYN care, men don't. Mm-hmm. I've, n- I've, I've never once been to, been to an OBGYN appointment for myself. Never needed to. <laughs> Good to know. Most, <laughs> mo- most soldiers, most people don't have the type of injuries that the soft community incurs. That's inherent in the nature of the work. Well, and it sounds like we so still don't, don't even know. So you know, the injuries that they're getting. We're we're still learning about it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We're still learning about it. Um, So my, 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 my point here is we need unique care for unique injuries. And that's all, that's all, that's my only point to the VA and to the DOD. They don't want to hear it, Mm -hmm. but it, it, it just, it simply is what it is. Um, We have unique injuries. The, Naval Special Warfare offered a data point at one point that uh, that 86% of, of, of special operations incur traumatic brain injuries in the course of their training alone in the, in the early years before they ever go into deployment. Mm-hmm. It's just inherent in the work. Mm-hmm. Basic, it's basic physics. What goes up is going to come down. Um, you, you put a man or a woman close to a blast wave enough times, deprive them of sleep long enough, you're going to get a cascade of, of injuries and, and difficulties. So, so, you know, just understanding the, the term operator syndrome, I, I think that you've made that very clear, um, that it's many different levels of injury um, to this unique population that's unique to them. But then the other question is, how do you treat all of that? Thank you for listening today, and please join us for our next podcast in the series where we will continue our conversation with Chris and learn about the many different treatment modalities that are emerging and get encouraging advice on how to navigate you or your loved one's healing journey. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.